because we see imperfectly in mortality. Not everything is going to make sense right now. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Welcome back, everyone. This is the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. Thanks for joining us. On today's episode, we have Dusty Smith joining us. A little bit about Dusty Smith. He has been a managing director, lieutenant colonel, and was a city councilman in Texas. He'll be sharing his story in just a minute, but a little bit about his story is he is someone that joined the church, left the church, became a critic for a number of years, and eventually came back. Thanks for joining us, Dusty. It's, glad, it's good to have you on the podcast. Thank you. So I guess let's kind of have you share your story on how did you first become acquainted with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Well, let's give a little background. I was, I was, I was born in 1960, if that gives you any idea how old I am. Um, but uh, my, my dad left when I was five. So I was uh, raised by my mother and my grandfather and my grandmother. And my grandmother was Lutheran and my grandfather was Catholic and my grandmother was Baptist. And I went to all three churches and I wasn't ever sure if I should kneel, sit, stand, sprinkle, dunk or pour. Um, I just wondered why there were so many different teachings based on one book, the Bible. But they did teach me to love the Lord. And uh, and I did. I also I grew up in a trailer house. We were we were very poor. Nobody in my family had ever gone to college, but I worked every summer and Christmas break and Easter break to raise money for college. And I went to college. Um, in my third year at the University of Texas, uh, a tragedy happened. Uh, a young friend um, was running home from school and she thought the glass doors on their house were open. They were shut. She ran through the glass door, uh, fell on a piece of glass that pierced her throat and killed her instantly. Wow. And I became very angry at, at God. And I said, well, this is how you treat people that love you. I can want nothing to do with you. And uh, I graduated from University of Texas in 1982. Um, in 83, I went home to visit my mother. Um, well, I went home because it was free to wash clothes. Okay. And, uh, and, the, and the fridge was always full. And my mother had been to Salt Lake on business uh, and somebody had given her a Book of Mormon and she put it on the bookshelf in my old bedroom. So while I was washing clothes, I wanted to read, I used to read Louis Lamore Westerns you know, really fast reads, 100 pages, really fast. And I was looking through the Westerns to see which one I wanted to read, and the Book of Mormon fell off a bookshelf. And so I sat down and just happened to open it up to Third Nephi um, out of curiosity and began to read, and I was I was intrigued. Uh, so I got the phone book and looked up. Um, well, and this is, where, this is where the members of the church are really strange, because if I wanted to look up Catholic, I would just look up parish, Baptist would just be church, but y'all had stakes and you had wards. Okay. I had no idea what to call, but it was lunchtime and I was hungry. So I called the steak and uh, the, the 
a person answered the phone and as he said, I, he was never here during the week, but he had forgotten some paperwork on Sunday and came by to pick it up at lunchtime. And uh, he just happened to be the stake president. So we chatted for a few minutes and, and um, I uh, made arrangements to meet with the missionaries at, in Austin uh, at the university ward at the University of Texas. And a few weeks later, I was baptized. <clears throat> and immediately, people would ask me to go on, you know, you should go on a mission. And I would say, I'm, I'm not going to go on a mission. I'm 23. I have a college degree. I have a job. You know, there's not, I'm not going to go on a mission. And they would say, okay, but somebody else come along a little bit, you know, a few weeks later, you should go on a mission. And I would say, I'm adulting. I'm not going to go on a mission. I have a college degree. I have a job pays money. I'm not going to, you know, it's not like I'm in college, can take a year off and go on a mission. But people kept bothering me about it. And I, I you know, I, I'm never going on a mission. Um, but anyway, while I was at the MTC, um, uh, you know, it was, my, my family thought I was crazy. You know, when, when I, when I became a member of the church, a lot of them turned their backs on me and, and a lot of my friends left. Um, when I quit a job, that was paying money to go on a mission at 24, they thought I was insane. And I was 24 years old at the MTC and, and I felt like I was babysitting. Yeah. <laughs> um, 19 year olds running around. Most of them never been away from home. I'd been living away from home for a while. Um, and I didn't really have a lot of support. And so I thought, you know, if nobody here cares, if I serve a mission, I'm going home. So I went to the payphone and I called the church headquarters in Salt Lake. And a lady answered the phone and I said, if nobody cares if I'm here, I'm going home. And she said, will you hold, please? So I held and pretty soon a voice came on the phone and said, Elder, if nobody else cares if you serve a mission, I do. My name is L. Tom Perry. <laughs> and so Elder Perry and I chatted and uh uh, he asked me if I would be his pen pal on my mission. So I was, I was, he was my pen pal on, on my mission. And uh, after my mission, he invited me up to Salt Lake to visit him in his office and give him a mission report. So I did. Um, after my mission, I went to law, I went to law school and I went in a foreign country. Um, well, Michigan. Um, and uh, I went to the only law school that would let me work full time. And uh, while I was at uh, in law school, my third year, uh, I went to Palmyra to the pageant. Um, and I encountered something that I had never encountered before, and that was anti-Mormons. And I came back from that experience and I wanted to be smarter so I could argue with them better and, and better defend the church. And I began to read all these old history and doctrinal books. And I began to read things I'd never heard before in my six years as a member. And uh, then I would ask questions and people would say in 89, don't ask questions, just, just have faith. Don't ask questions, just have faith. And uh, that really bothered me. And I woke up one day in, in 89 and realized I no longer had a testimony. And I wrote a letter to the stake president in 1989 and said, remove my name from church records. And a few weeks later, I got a letter from them saying I've been excommunicated. And that made me angry. Um, 
and I began to become an anti-Mormon um, and not just a uh, quiet one. I would stop missionaries on their bikes on the street. I would go to other churches and teach classes against the church. I would write articles. I would argue with anybody I could find about the church. I hated the church. Um, I was in the army. I, uh, I, I came back from the army or came back from, uh, from Panama and, uh, and discovered the internet where I could, argue with people from the comfort of my own home. Yeah. You know, I could go on to message boards and argue with people. And I joined a board in 99 called, uh, what do Mormons really believe? And I went to go tell them. And I met a guy named Mike and Mike and I, Mike was a member of the church lives in Springville here in Utah. And, uh, he and I used to have these bitter debates, just bitter. And over time, he and I became friends. Um, I was never going to join the church again, but we became friends and he put my name in the temple every week for 20 years, every week. And I would tell him, don't do that. It's false church, false temples, false God. Don't do that. But he did it every week. Um, in 2009, I went down to, uh, do depositions as an attorney. I was an attorney. I went down to, to do depositions, um, in Laredo, Texas, which is on the border. And I came back with a, with a souvenir. I came back with the swine flu. Okay. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the swine flu, uh, in my opinion, maybe worse than COVID. The difference is, is that nobody back then did anything about it. So yeah. nobody was testing. We know that hundreds of people, hundreds of thousands of people died around the world, but we don't know how many ever had it because we weren't testing like they're testing everybody now for COVID. Yeah. But they weren't testing anybody back then. Um, I'm a disabled veteran from knee injury, six knee surgeries. And um, and I called the VA to get because I was really sick. And they they, they I, I said, I'm dying. And they said, what are your symptoms? And I said, the ones you get when you're dying. And they said, have you been to Mexico? And I said, yes. They said, don't come here. No doctor would see me because they were afraid I would get them sick or get their patients sick. Yeah. So I was laying in my deathbed in Dallas, Texas, on the second floor of my house. And uh, there was a knock on the door. And my eldest boy opened up the door and let into my house two missionaries and brought them up to my deathbed. I like to tell people he has since been uh, disinherited. <laughs> One of the missionaries took a look at me and I'm, I'm literally dying. I, I, I figured I was gonna die because everybody was dying from the swine flu. Yeah, There was no cure. And uh, one of them looks at me, the missionary and says, you're sick. And I thought to myself, man, that, the spirit is strong in that one. Um, and I said, get out of my house. And one of them said, could we give you a blessing? And I said, we'll get you out of my house. And they said, yes. And I said, give me your blessing. And they gave me a blessing and I was immediately healed. Uh, I don't mean that I got better over the next few days. I mean, my fever broke, wow. the sweating stopped. I was able to stand up out of bed for the first time in days. And I walked them downstairs to the front door and kicked them out of my house. 
So don't ever come back. Um, in 2014, I joined a, a different board uh, and I joined under the name Country Boy. And I went to argue against the church and uh, a girl named Garden Girl began to message me and she said, uh, I'm a member of the church and I know you're not, but I feel very drawn to you, very drawn to you. Can we chat? And I wrote her back and I said, dear Garden Girl, we can chat, but I must warn you, I'm married. And she wrote back and she said, dear country boy, I'm 76 years old. Get over yourself. And uh, so we began to chat. And one day she said, can you, can we talk on the phone? Cause I'm not very good at the computer. I said, sure. I still didn't know her name. She was still garden girl to me. Yeah. But we talked on the phone and she asked me if I had any family in the church. And I said, I don't. And I said, well, I, I might. I said, back when I was a member in the eighties, um, I knew of a guy who was a big mucky muck. He was uh, in the, you know, uh, in the church. His, his name is Dean Jesse. Now, a lot of folks haven't heard of Dean Jesse, but they have heard of his project called the Joseph Smith Papers. Um, those series of books are his baby. He is the church historian emeritus. Uh, but I said, but if he's alive, yeah, I got family, but I, he may not even be alive. I don't, I don't know. And she said, Dean Jesse's your cousin. And I said, yeah. My, my grandmother's a Jesse. And she said, Dean Jesse's my cousin. Wow. So it turns out this woman who was drawn to me was a member of my family I never knew existed. Also in 2014, my wife got a, uh, a job offer of a promotion, but it required her moving to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where she'd be in charge of all the studios from Texas to Florida. Now, I, I, I don't know about y'all, but uh, the words promotion and Baton Rouge, Louisiana should never go in the same sentence. Um, but she said, should I take this position, this, uh, this promotion? I said, absolutely, baby. It's your dream. I'm living my dream. I'm an attorney. You need to live your dream. You move to Baton Rouge. I'll stay in Dallas. We'll have a plan. And that plan would be that she would keep that job until the same level job opened in Texas and she could just transfer back to Texas with that promotion. So she moved to Baton Rouge. In January of 2015, she had taken her district, which was in the forties when she got it to number four in the company. And her reward for that was that she was, uh, she was given a call and told that they were gonna close her district and be sending her her severance paperwork. And she called me and says, what do I do? I said, come on back to Texas, we'll figure it out. But the next day, the vice president of the company called her and said, don't sign any paperwork. There's an opening in Baltimore. Take that position, put your paperwork in for it. It's two weeks to vet, but stay in Baton Rouge until the vetting is over. So I called my friend, Mike, and I said, listen, Mike, would you please pray that she gets this promotion I mean, she gets this transfer to Baltimore because we have this plan that she's going to have this, keep this position, this promotion until she can move back to Texas. Mike said, I'll pray for her. And at this point, I could have just hung up the phone, but I tried to be, you know, funny. And so I said, however, Mike, if Heavenly Father really wants me back in the church, he will send Susan to Utah. Now, I felt comfortable saying that because there were no openings in Utah Yeah, that day. 
The very next day, the person in Utah retired. And the very next day, Susan's paperwork was transferred from Baltimore to Salt Lake, and she was hired immediately with no vetting. So I called Mike and I said, you're not going to believe this, Mike, but Susan's going to Utah. He said, well, you know what you told God? I said, I was just joking. And he said, God wasn't. So I hit my knees and I said, okay, Heavenly Father, for 26 years, I've had issues. Nobody's been able to answer them. I've talked to all the apologists, read the apologetics. No answer works for me on these issues. So I need answers or I can't do this. And over the next few weeks, I'd wake up in the middle of the night with a new answer to an issue that I'd never heard before until I woke up one day in March of, of 2015 and I had my testimony back. And I called Mike and I bore my testimony and Mike wept. A few weeks later, I came to visit Susan in Salt Lake. <clears throat> and it was kind of a perfect weekend for that. It was a long weekend because my, it was Easter weekend and my, my firm had Good Friday off. So I had a three-day weekend. And it was our anniversary because Susan and I got married on April Fool's Day because we thought that was appropriate. So it was our anniversary and a three-day weekend. And so I came to Salt Lake and every day I walk five miles. Okay. I can't run anymore, but I walk. And so I'm doing my five-mile walk. And the Lord says to me during my walk, this is home now. And I said, no, no, it's not. I live in Texas. And he said, well, this is home now. And I said, no, I have a job paying me a lot of money in Texas and a house. Lord, you may have seen it. And he said, this is home now. And I said, no, Susan doesn't want to live in Utah forever. We have a plan. Well, I get back to the apartment Susan's rented. And I said, hey, baby, out of curiosity, what do you think about Utah? And she said, I've been trying to figure out how to bring it up to you, but I don't ever want to leave. I said, fine. So I came back to Dallas and I, I called a realtor and I said, come see if you can sell my house. And she came to the, looked at the house and said, you're never going to sell it. It was built in 1929. It has too many issues. You'll spend thousands of dollars to get up to code. You'll never get what the house is worth. I said, okay. Well, I get rebaptized. The next week I get a knock on my door and a guy says, I want to buy your house. And I said, my house is not for sale. He said, I don't care. I want to buy it. I said that, that I, yeah, I appreciate that more than you can possibly imagine, but I can't afford to fix it up to get it up to code to sell it to you. He said, no, I want to buy it as is. I said, how much? He told me, and it was more than the house was worth. And I called Susan and told her, and she said, man, when God wants you someplace, he really wants you someplace. Um, the rest of that story is about a year later, I'm sitting in the apartment in Utah, in Salt Lake, here in Salt Lake, and uh, I get a phone call and a guy says, I want to buy your house in Dallas. And I said, I've already sold that house. He said, are you sure? I said, pretty sure I was there. He said, well, did you get the money? I said, and spent it. He said, hang on. And I could hear him shuffling papers around. He goes, huh? I said, what? He goes, the guy that bought your house disappeared. 
that house is abandoned and in foreclosure. Now I told that to a to a fire at a fireside um, at the women's prison, and one of the female prisoners, the oldest one in the prison, in fact, whispered to me, "You should have sold it again." <laughs> and I walked over to her and kneeled down there. She was a little short thing. I said, "That would be against the law." Um, a few weeks later, Susan and I go to uh, Moab. We wanna. She wants to show me the arches because until then, I'd only seen arches in you know McDonald's. And so um, I'm, I'm in the hotel and I get a phone call on my cell phone. And a woman says, is this Dusty? I said, yes. And she says, I see you've been on the church website and you want information on the church. I said, that is not true. And she said, sir, the only way your name pops up on my screen is you've been on the church website and you asked for information about the church. I said, be that as it may. What me? She said, well, then how did I get your name and phone number? I said, I do not know, but my computer is in Salt Lake and I am in Moab. And she said, are, are you a member of the church? And I said, let me tell you a story. I get done telling my story and she's in tears. And she said that she was at the MTC having a crisis of faith. And they put her on the phone calling people that wanted information on the church. And she called me when my name popped up. And after hearing my story, she was going to go finish her mission. A few weeks later, I get another phone call. A woman says, is this Dusty? I said, yes, it is. And she said, would you please hold for President Uchtdorf? And I went, okay. And he gets on the phone. And he said, my understanding is that you left the church for 26 years and came back. I said, that's true. He says, will you come see me? So I did. And he said, will you let me tell your story at general conference? And I said, sure. And he said, I won't tell your real name. I said, that's okay. And so in October, 2016 priesthood session of general conference, he gives a talk about Alma and Amulek and he tells my story. In January or February of 2017, Susan and I go on a date. Well, we went to a gun show. Uh, yeah, I don't know how people date up here in Utah, but in Texas, we go to gun shows. But anyway, um, I needed a holster. So we're shopping around. We're looking. I see a table. I go over to this table <clears throat> and I start talking to the fellow. He goes, you're from Texas. I said, yeah. He says, what are you doing in Utah? I said, let me tell you a story. And he said, wait a second. That talk in general commerce was about you. I said, yep. He goes, can we chat? I said, sure. So we walk over to my, he and my wife and I walk over to a, a little quiet area of the Sandy Expo Center in, here in Utah, and I uh, start to talk about my story, and another fellow follows us over. I get done with my story, and the fellow that followed us over says, you're from Texas, and I said, yes. He goes, Dallas. I said, yes. He goes, Oh Cliff, and I said, yes. He said, you don't remember me, but eight years ago, you had the swine flu, and I gave you a blessing. The rest of that story is, is that after his mission, he went inactive. Before the general conference in 2016, his bishop said, I've had enough of your act inactivity. Here is a ticket to the priesthood session. He goes to the priesthood session. Here's the story about Alma and Amulek, and it reactivates him, not realizing that the story was about somebody he had given a blessing to eight years prior. Now, I say all that to say this. 
the Lord loves you. You know, people tell me all the time, I pray for one miracle to happen in my life, and they happen to you all the time. And I say they happen to you too. The difference is I see them. There are no coincidences. The Lord's behind everything. He has a plan for everything. That's how much he loves us. He loves us enough that he gave us a prophet. I don't think people realize how cool that is. There are 40,000 different denominations in this country all teaching something different using the Bible. Why? Because they get confused. They don't like something, they go start their own church. The Church of England started because the king wanted a, 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 a divorce. The Pope wouldn't give him one, so he started his own church. <laughs> you know, that's... You know, my, my oldest boy has got severe dyslexia, and it's a strange dyslexia. Um, it, it, if the word doesn't have a picture to it, he'd understand what the word means. Dog, house, car, he understands those. Is, was, mean nothing to him. There's no picture associated with those words. So a lot of times we would tell him to do something and he would guess at what we meant, not understanding all the words. And it dawned on me, that's what the world has is religious dyslexia. They're guessing. They don't have a prophet. We have the cure for religious dyslexia. When I was coming back to the church, a friend of mine said, I can't believe you're going to believe in a prophet. I said, I don't believe you don't. You know, in, in the Christian world, there's a thing called sola scriptura. Protestants believe in sola scriptura. And it means if it's not in the Bible, it doesn't exist. So they will never, ever accept the Book of Mormon. It's not in the Bible. Okay? Sola scriptura. They believe that, that prophecy and, and, and the Lord talking to prophets all ended in the new, after the New Testament. And so I told this friend of mine, I said, let me ask you a question. You've got three kids, right? He said, yeah. I said, tell you what, when they turn 18, bring them in and tell them. Now that you've turned 18, I'm never going to talk to you again. Everything you'll ever need to know, I've told you. All you have to do is think back to our traditions when you have a problem. Think back to things I've told you when you have a problem because I'm never going to talk to you again. He said, I can't do that. I said, so what you're telling me is you're a better father than Heavenly Father. He said, I never said that. I said, sure, because you believe that's exactly what God did to us, that he has not spoken to us with a prophet since the New Testament. How can that possibly be to a loving God? And he goes, I never thought of it that way. I said, well, you got time. That's how much the Lord loves us. He gave us the atonement. When I was with President Uchtdorf, he asked me if I had a testimony of the atonement. And I said, that's a trick question. He said, why is that a trick question? I said, because I believe in it for you. I believe in it for all y'all. But I fought against the church for 26 years, doing all I could to hurt the church for 26 years. I don't deserve the atonement. And he said, Dusty. And I looked up and he had that smile on his face. And he said, your sins are forgiven. He loves us enough to give us eternal marriage. When my wife moved here, she was Southern Baptist. And she said, look, I'll go to church with you. I'll go to functions with you. 
I'll support you, but I will never, ever, 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 ever get baptized. Now, I didn't try to force her. Well, the most I ever said was I'd, I'd get my patriarchal blessing and I would say, hey, baby, my patriarchal blessing says I get sealed in the temple. I'd like it to be with you. When we met with President Nukdorf, he chatted with her about the need to come to the church and to get the blessings of the church. The next day, she said, I'm ready for the discussions. And then I was able to, after that, have the extreme and unique pleasure of baptizing my own wife. And in a few days, we're going to celebrate our second anniversary of being sealed together. Congratulations. Thank you. Now, I tell people all the time, look, you're going to hear negative things about the church. They're everywhere. Everywhere. But I tell people, look, well, you know, a, a guy walked up to me one day. He said, can you help me find the perfect church? I said, sure. He said, you can? I said, absolutely. He says, how do I find the perfect church? I said, die. You're not going to find the perfect church in this world. We're not perfect people. But you're not supposed to look for the perfect church. You're supposed to look for the church that has the prophet, the keys, the gospel, the restored gospel, the prophet, all of that. And we have that. Are there mistakes? Sure. Are there errors? Sure. People make mistakes. I've gotten thousands and thousands of emails and questions since this whole journey of the firesides and the book and the magazine article and everything started. And my number one question what do I think about polygamy? I tell people I love it. I got 14 wives. Now, I tell people I don't care about polygamy. Doesn't affect me. Look, take anything in the church, any point in the church you want to take. There's only two options, from God, not from God, right? Now, if something's from God, above my pay grade, as we said in the army, above my pay grade. But if it's not from God, and I'm not saying that polygamy is not from God, by the way, but for the sake of argument, for the sake of this discussion, let's just say it's not from God. Then it would be, by definition, a mistake. And if it's a mistake, is the prophet still a prophet? Absolutely. If a doctor makes a mistake, he's still a doctor. If an attorney makes a mistake, he's still an attorney. If a teacher makes a mistake, he's still a teacher. Go back to the basics. Did he get the first vision? Yes. Did he interpret the Book of Mormon? Yes. Anybody can read the Book of Mormon and think that a person wrote that? Look, I've written books, poetry, songs, briefs, documents. I have a, a college degree, a law degree. I have years of education and experience, and I could not write the Book of Mormon. If I can't do it with all my education experience, do you really think an uneducated kid could do it? Of course not. Of course not. Just use logic. Read 2 Nephi, the rich doctrine in 2 Nephi, not the Isaiah chapters, but the rest of 2 Nephi, the doctrine you find in 2 Nephi, and you want, to, you want people to believe that a, a kid came up with that all on his own? Oh my gosh, it, it's impossible. You know, I had a couple walk up to me after a fireside one day, and and uh, 
the wife said, we just got married and, and he's found some things in, in the, uh, in the church that he doesn't, he never heard before. He doesn't like, he's thinking about leaving the church. Can you help us? I said, Nope, but I do have a question. And he said, what's the question? I said, y'all just got married. Yes. Y'all just moved in together. Yes. Okay, sir. You find out that she doesn't put the tap cap on the toothpaste. She squeezes the toothpaste from the middle, puts the toilet paper in backwards, a little messier than you're used to. Doesn't cook like your mama. Now, I don't know which of those were true, but she was hiding her eyes quite a bit. I said, now you have an option. Do you leave her because you found things you didn't know before you married her? Or is the love good enough that you stay despite the things you just found out? And he said, I love her enough and the love is good enough where I stay despite the things I just found out. I said, well, you just described the church. And he took, looked to his wife and said, let's go home. We need to pray. You know, finding something negative doesn't make it not true. Finding something wrong doesn't make it not true. Don't let the faith give in to the doubt. Don't let what you don't know overcome what you do know. Don't let the thing that God gave you, your testimony, be ruined by man or by Satan. Let the power be where the power should be, with the Lord. Don't. Are you going to stop eating chocolate because you find out that chocolate's got some bad properties? Are you going to stop eating pizza because you found out that pizza's got some bad properties? No, of course not. You're going to say, oh, I like it anyway. You know, come on. It is the truth. And all the negative stuff can't change the truth. And all the negative stuff can't change the fact that the church is true and we have the restored gospel. And we're happier when we're in the gospel than when we're out of the gospel. Trust me, I was out for 26 years. Nothing that you can do will take you out of Heavenly Father's reach. His arms are extremely long. Nothing you can say will make him stop loving you. You know, when I was in high school, I was in a play called The Company of Wayward Saints. And it was about a group of improvisationists who would go around and take uh, ideas from the audience and do little scenes based on the play of uh, the ideas from the audience, right? Um, there was a show that, uh, like, uh, What's My Line or something like that. It was all about improvisation. Anyway, one of the scenes, I play a doctor, an old-fashioned doctor who does house calls. And I'm at a home to deliver a baby. And I'm with the prospective father on the front porch. And the father says, Shouldn't you be doing something? And in the play, my, my line was, when God is ready, he'll let us know. And in the play, the father then asks me, do you believe in God? And in the play, here is my answer. That's a difficult question for a man of science to answer. But I will tell you this. I know that God believes in me. And no matter what you do, He's going, to, he's going to still love you. No matter what you say or think, he's going to still love you. No matter what you ever, ever think about doing, want to do, do, have done, whatever, he will always believe in you. And I leave this testimony with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Dusty. I appreciate your words. I'm definitely feeling the spirit right now, and I hope that our audience are feeling the spirit as much as I am. Um, 
I guess just a few quick questions before we end. Sure. Um, are there any things in your life that you feel like maybe made you a little bit more vulnerable to your initial faith crisis? Like oh, sure. Like lack of sleep or like prior misconceptions you had sure. or such? Sure. When, when, I, when I came off my mission, I, like I said, I went to law school. Okay. And I, I, um, the only law school in the country that I could find that let me work full time was in Michigan. And most law schools wouldn't let you work if you're a first year person because it's law school's hard. I worked a full time job. I went to law school full time. I drove two hours a day to and from school. My wife didn't speak English. My, my, my wife back then did not speak English. So I did all the grocery shopping. I had two children born during exam weeks. I literally averaged three to three and a half hours of sleep for three and a half years. When the crisis of faith came, I didn't have a lot. I didn't have any family in Michigan. I was tired. I was trying to study for the bar exam. I wasn't prepared for that faith crisis, physically, emotionally, mentally. Um, so I think that had a lot to do with it. I, I just was sheer exha exhaustion in, in the circumstances that I were in. I think that had a lot to do with it. And I guess like while you were kind of, um, kind of in your, your years of being a critic and such, what was it that Mike did to forge this friendship with you and to minister to you? You know, I, the question I get a lot is, I have this person, this family or friend who, who left the church. What do I do? How do I handle it? And I say, be Mike. You know, Mike put my name in the temple every week for 20 years. Think about that. Okay, that's 20 years, 52 times a year, he put my name in the temple. Wow. Okay. He never gave up. He didn't, after the initial round of debates that we had, we didn't debate after that. He wouldn't debate me. He didn't want to argue with me. Number one, don't debate with an anti. They know more about the church than you do. They study just to, just to argue with you. And Mike found that out. Mike, Mike had a hard time dealing with my arguments because he didn't know the answers. And he stopped arguing with me, just started being my friend. We chatted. We, we, he, he was my friend. And he, he didn't pressure me. He didn't push me. Um, he never gave up. He prayed for me. And he put my name in the temple for every week for 20 years. Um, I tell people, be Mike. Just be Mike. Don't ever give up. Don't be pushy, but don't give up. That's really helpful. Um, and I think you, this next question I'm going to ask, I think you've already covered it a lot, but I just want to see if you have any other thoughts on it. Do you have any other advice for people that right now find themselves in a faith crisis where they have serious questions and they have serious doubts and they're just barely holding on to the church right now? Go back to the basics. Seriously. You know, if you go back and you, and you, to the basics, to the, to the first vision, to the book of Mormon, um, don't let the, 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 the other stuff, cause there's, there, there's, there's lots of things that are, that, that people have that are, that they 
find problematic with the church. Um, I'll even share one with you. Um, one of my issues was archaeology. Okay, and I would tell Mike, I can walk the streets of Jerusalem, but I can't walk the streets of Zarahemla. Therefore, it must not be true. And I didn't like all the reasons that people gave me why you couldn't do that. I didn't like them. One of the big ones was, well, it's was if it's in Central America, there's all these jungles and stuff and it grow overgrown, blah, 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 blah. I never bought that because I lived in Central America. You're not going to live in the jungles when you can live in the mountains or on the coast or at the, on the lake where there's food and, and everything. You're, you're not going to live in the jungles where there's snakes and bugs and everything and, and the humidity out the wall. You're going to you're going to go to the mountains. You're going to go to the to the to the. Uh, uh, coast where there's food and fish and stuff. So I never really believed those, those arguments. One of the things I woke up in the middle of the night, one night I had a dream and the Lord said to me, um, if you, if you walk the streets of Jerusalem, does that make the Bible true? I said, no. He said, but if tomorrow somebody's doing some excavation and they find a sign, they wipe off the sign that says, welcome to Zarahemla, population 450. What does that do for the Book of Mormon? I said, it makes it unequivocally true. He said, then where would your faith be? And that was the first answer I'd ever heard on this topic that meant something to me, that, that I understood. We're not supposed to know everything exactly. We are required to have some faith. We're not given every answer. But you know what? Let me tell you another little story. So I I, 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 I met a, a fireside, and a guy walks up to me before the fireside. He says, I used to have faith, don't have faith, will never have faith, was a member, not a member, will never be a member. I said, well, thanks for coming. After I get done speaking, I opened up for questions, and he raised his hand, and he said, um, I'm an attorney like you. And I can't prove that faith exists, so I can't have faith. I said, okay, let me ask you a question. Do you love anybody? He said, my wife. I said, prove it. He goes, I'm nice to her. I said, so everybody you're nice to, you love? He goes, no. I said, let me ask you this. Does she love you? He said, yeah. I said, how do you know? He said, I just believe she does. I said, that sounds like faith to me. He has since been rebaptized into the church. And he's... Incidentally, a great-great-grandson of Brigham Young. But my point is this. You have faith. It's, it's, it's this living, breathing thing that's inside. Your testimony is a living thing. If you're not feeding it, you're starving it. If you're not giving it something to drink, you're starving it. If you give it bad stuff, you're killing it. To maintain your faith, do the things that, that promote faith. Read the scriptures. Pray. Hang around people that are uplifting to you, because if you if if you if you let Satan get a get a foothold, he'll take it. And so what you do is you don't let the little things affect your faith. Don't let the things that are that that you don't know affect the things. Don't let your doubts overcome your faith. Work on having your faith. Get rid of the doubts, because there's always going to be doubts, always. But don't let them overcome your faith. Work on that. Feed your faith. Starve your fears. Well, thank you so much, Desi. I think that's great advice for everyone. Thanks for joining us. This has been the To Whom Shall We Go podcast.